When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860, and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm happy to be back in the studio this afternoon with two lovely local women who are with me um, in the studio. We're going to introduce them in just a moment. Excuse me. If you're listening to the show and you have a question, we'd love for you to call in and join us. You can do so by dialing 888-329-329. 3306. That's 888-329-3306. And be sure to check out our website to see our list of upcoming guests and all of the um, wonderful new content that uh, we're posting from our contributors at womentowatch.net. And that's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. Uh, now, I'm, I'm really thrilled and honored to introduce my guest this afternoon. I have both Pat Roberts and Nancy Blair, who are co-founders of AIM Academy here uh, just outside of Philadelphia. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Sue. It's really nice to have you, and um, I hope that we can cover all of the topics we were um, speaking about just prior to the show going live. Um, I, I wanted to start with a quote. And when I was perusing your website and trying to educate myself on um, the school and, and both of your bios and backgrounds, um, the very first sentence of your about page says, in many ways, our story is most likely similar to yours. And when I read that, I kind of laughed to myself because I think often women who take on big challenges think that what they're doing is maybe not that big of a deal. <laughs> and I would um, argue that it is and that it's not, you know, really similar to, to many women in the fact that you um, had an issue uh, with your daughters and you saw a challenge in the educational system and you decided to build a school. <laughs> That's a big deal. So, um, Pat, I'll start with you. Um, and maybe you can speak to that just, you know, briefly about um you know, what was the catalyst for that moment when when you and Nancy said, you know, we're going to do more than kind of talk amongst ourselves about our daughters who have um, these learning disabilities and, and do something big? Um, why don't you tell me about that moment? 
I think sometimes opportunities just come to you. And Nancy and I joke all the time that we never intended to start a school. And that's how it started. We met when our daughters were six years old. They both have language-based learning differences. And, but through our journey, that is our journey, that's probably where our journey is very similar to many other moms and dads who have children who may be struggling to learn to read or struggling in school and maybe folks don't really understand what is the issue. And when we met, uh, we were going on our way thinking that we would just work together. We would be presidents of our daughter's home and school association. And we would raise some dollars that would allow teachers to get trained in different programs. That's how it started. And then we met this incredible woman by the name of Sally Smith, who was definitely ahead of her time. She started a school in 1967 called the Lab School of Washington in D.C., mm-hmm. and it is a school for children with language-based learning differences. And through that was ahead of, ahead of her time, Way right? ahead yes. of her time. Yeah. And we just happened to have the opportunity through our parent association and our work with our daughter's school at one point to meet Sally Smith. And one thing led to another, She loved our energy. She loved our backgrounds, and we can talk a little bit about our backgrounds. And she just said one day, well, I think you need to start a school. And that planted the seed. It was that moment, and it was in about 2004, 2005 Mm -hmm. when that started. Okay. And I'll mention that, so your background is... is um, in education, and Nancy's is in uh, medicine. She's she's a, a nurse. Um, you received your undergraduate and graduate degree in education from Westchester. Did you always want to be a teacher? I always wanted to be a teacher. My mom is 93 years old, and she definitely saw me being a teacher from a very young age. I was the oldest. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. And apparently, I would set up shop on our little porch in Roxborough, <laughs> and I would, that's what I would Pull do out the all chalkboard. summer long. <laughs> I would teach the children in the neighborhood at my chalkboard. Yeah. So this is the story she tells. And it's true. That's, I've never, everything I've done, whether I've been in the classroom or I've had a business, it's always been in the field of education. Yeah. So it's exciting. It's it's such an um, incredible combination, the two of you, be, with the education and the medicine background, to um, have taken on this, you know, this project. Um, I wanted to mention you also launched, um, Pat, the Institute for Educational Excellence and Entrepreneurship um, in 2000, I believe. Uh, I did in 2000. I, I just sometimes I think you get lucky, or as people say, the harder you work, the luckier you get. But at Westchester University, uh, my first job out of the university was with the demonstration school or the lab school at Westchester University. And I was working with teachers. I was traveling. I was working on grants. I was working with faculty members at the university. And when that closed, which it did, I had the opportunity to then launch uh, a private uh, company with another partner to take the same work to to the field that was that launched my entrepreneurial 
career. I sold that business mm -hmm. and then in 2000 went back to the university and launched the Institute for Educational Excellence and Entrepreneurship, the 3E Institute. And, and, and what was the, the main goal of that? The main goal there was to say, I had learned so much in the education space in a for-profit world, working with business, seeing how they operated. And I thought educators should know about business and should know how to fundraise and should know how to link their students with internships and opportunities in business. Mm -hmm. And so Nancy and I did some work together there where we started identifying educators who we called them the Educator 500. And that's actually where we met Sally Smith. Okay. And yeah. she was awarded the 2004 Educator 500 President's Award yes. uh, by the then president of Westchester University. And that basically started our mutual admiration society between Sally and what was possible. Yes, yeah. I would say that all three of you then were really visionaries, right, in seeing um, what was needed at a time when, um, you know, everything around the education was, I would say, very, um, uh, what's the, you know, every all the children were learning the same way and doing the same things. A and scripted program. There yes. you go, yeah. So, Nancy, you received a graduate degree in nurse anesthesia from the University of Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. which is where you grew up, yes. born and raised. Um, tell me where your desire to be a nurse came from. Well, it, originally I had wanted to be a teacher, but again, back in the days of um, the 70s, at that time, there would be no jobs to come out um, of college. So I had my knee operated on, and I, at the age of 16, and I really thought there were some phenomenal nurses and some that weren't so phenomenal, and I really wanted to help make a difference. So I graduated, went to um, nursing, and worked on orthopedic floor. At that time, then I started to have trouble with my other knee, and the surgeon that did um, my surgery said to me, I'd really like you to spend the day with my wife. She is an anesthesiologist. I think this might be a better field for you than to be on your legs all day long. So mm -hmm. I spent the day with her and said, I'm not sure I can do this. And they said, absolutely, you can. So then I moved to the ICU, worked there for several years, and then went to anesthesia school and then um, worked in a variety of hospitals around the United States when my husband had relocated us for um, different transfers. Okay. It's interesting. I, I wonder if that doctor had not made that suggestion to you, would you have ended up in anesthesia? I might not have because at that time I w really wasn't familiar with the field, and he opened my eyes to a uh, career right. that I might not have ever heard of right. if it wasn't for um, the surgeon. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the moment. So you both have daughters, and they um, have – do they both have dyslexia? Is yes. Is that the diagnosis? And uh, they were both in first grade, and you met. And here you had this in common, these two young girls, you know, with, with this issue. I'd love to go back um, to the meeting, the time you both met, and tell me what that first conversation was like. 
Nancy, go ahead. Well, it really starts that it was back to school night, and we both have two children. So my son's back to school night happened to be the same night. So I went to his school. My husband went to where Colleen was going to school, and he came home and told me that night there was a new mother in the class, and he thought the two of us would really hit it off. <laughs> Never anything about a little girl having a right. daughter, but that there was a new mother in the class. And so I'm like, okay. Wait, did he say that really not knowing yet that you, oh my gosh. No. no. Wow. So then we got, we started to work a lot with volunteer components of things to try to make a difference for the children who were learned different, um, learned differently at their school. And so we really did a lot of volunteer work together from putting together some symposium, um, trying to bring various experts in the field. And this was just all as um, two mothers at that time. Volunteering and, and doing what they could. I was still working in the hospitals and Pat was um, launching her business. And so when we looked at this, but I would go to each one of my conferences because having been in the anesthetic era anesthesia field for such a long time, I would turn and say, so, okay, she has dyslexia. What does the research support we should do? Because if you told me that she had cancer or you told me she had diabetes, I'd be at the best physician, I'd be at the best um, hospital, mm. and I would be asking you what was the research, and I would also be asking you data showing that that um, uh, plan was making progress. And I realized what an anomaly I was showing up at um, the conference is saying this. So when I started to do my own research and there wasn't still as much accessibility to the internet, I found there was a lot of research, but it wasn't hitting the classroom. Mm. And I thought this would never be ignored in medicine. And yet quotes I was finding was saying that it took 10 years for the research to hit the classroom. Well, we didn't have 10 years for our daughters to spend for that time. So as a result, as two volunteers, we were going to continually hopefully bring the training, et cetera. And then working with Pat on those volunteer components of things and creating opportunities, then I worked with her at um, the 3E Institute at Westchester. And then we also turned around and then met Sally Smith. And then the conversation was, I like the way the two of you think. You're entrepreneurial. You've done, I had gone back to school, had done a lot of training and in the various reading programs. And so that's really the impetus of how it all started. I'd love to ask you both, did you accept the diagnosis of dyslexia right off the bat? We did. Pat? I think we have different stories. Nancy's was a little different path, but... My daughter was tested at five, if not before, maybe four and a half, five. That's because young. What did you see? Very young. Yeah. What I saw was in preschool, the teachers would say, well, she's very sweet, and she gets along with everyone, but she's just not remembering her rhymes. She doesn't know all her colors. There were some very definite uh, areas that I now know are huge red flags mm. for young children and should have given me an alert. But I didn't know anyone in my family. I wasn't tuned in to anyone having dyslexia because if you if you have a, uh, a spouse or you yourself have dyslexia, 
you have a far, far greater chance, upwards of 45, 50%. Oh, is that right? that your child would have dyslexia. So there was none of that that I was aware of at the time. Mm-hmm. So it was, I had her tested and they came back and said she needs phonics, she needs very explicit instruction in learning her sounds and her letters. And she was starting to get tutored as a preschooler before going into kindergarten. Which is ideal, right? Ideal. Because the sooner the better. And then throughout her kindergarten, uh, she did not go to a special school. She went to a small little kindergarten near my home, and I would work with the teachers and show them what the tutor was indicating she needed. And mm-hmm. I think it's... Thank, and then she was getting speech and language to develop her language as well. So that was the journey we started on very, very early. And Nancy, yours was similar. It was. I do remember going to the pediatrician when Colleen was younger, and I did say, I don't remember spending this much time having working with my son to learn his letters of the alphabet. And at that time, the pediatrician just told me to stop comparing my children. (laughs) So for six months, I listened, but something just kept on telling me this was too much work. Was she your second? She was my second. And I knew I did not have to work on any of these um, items with my older child. So I did go through, I do say that parents, when you're first given that diagnosis, it is a journey. And that's what we mean by we, our journey is very similar to yours when they're reading that our website. Because at first, I didn't understand how this could have happened in that, you know, two children, same household, same environment, exposed to the same aspects of things. But then why was one struggling to learn Mm -hmm. the alphabet and to read? So as Pat said, there were red flags, but I didn't have anyone guiding me that those were red flags. When I look back on it, I see I went to one preschool when they told me she was struggling with something, I switched her to another preschool. When that school told me she was struggling with something, I switched to another preschool. <laughs> oh, when the f- third one said the same thing, I went, okay, maybe I have to address this. Right. But what I think, there's a woman who's named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in the 70s, and she talked about there's a, um, a philosophy in, about grieving and a loss. And I do believe as a parent, it's, you don't dream that your child struggles. You want it to be easy for them. And so at first you go through denial and then you go through anger. It's very easy to say, oh, it's the teacher's fault, but it really isn't. It is neurological in origin and they need to be taught the way they need, the way they learn. And then you go into grieving, and then you go into acceptance. And at any one time, you can go back into these other stages of the grieving process. And all of a sudden, that really hit me. I've been taught that as a young nurse to look at patients when they were going through that and meet them where they were Mm -hmm. in their process. But I realized I needed to do that as a mother as well. And I had an aha moment pretty early on that if I accepted this, I could help her and I could help myself. And then we both would could work as a team and be more successful. 
I think for some parents that journey is quicker through those stages Mm -hmm. and for others it takes longer we were discussing about labeling I say it is totally fine to say that a child has a language-based learning difference or dyslexia because how can anyone address it if we don't know what the issue is? And we wouldn't hide diabetes from anyone. We wouldn't hide if our child was struggling with any type of medical issue on this. This is the same component. There is a study that 35% of all successful entrepreneurs have some form of learning difference and or dyslexia well if that's the case there are many wonderful people out there have been highly successful regardless of their early struggles what's equally as sad to us is that we look at our prisons and perhaps as many if not 50 percent or higher um, are struggling readers we have adults out there that 10 percent of all adults are illiterate these are the stats that drive us and this is what yes it started with our girls our girls did not we did not get the school up in time to benefit them but aim is much of what we would have dreamed for them at a young age but equally important now as the aim institute starts to do more teacher training the 341 students at AIM right now, they're the lucky ones. But with a teacher training, we can impact a broader audience. And that's really, um, that's our dream right now and our goal. I, I just want to make a comment. I think your aha moment is just an incredible, uh, great life example. You know, acceptance will lead you to moving forward, solutions, whatever that might be, right? Absolutely. If you're not at whatever your circumstances, and I would say children, if they don't have a learning disability, they have an issue in another area. There's no, right? You it, are so right. It's not easy. So um, I think that's a great, you know, life lesson. And, you know, you mentioned um, sharing and teaching what you've learned with other teachers. It, you know, what you've done, um, and, and I'll say that, uh, you know, I, the theme throughout AIM Academy is this innovative teaching. And so for our listeners, what exactly is that? What are you doing that's different? And how can it be used broadly throughout all schools? Well, our tagline is innovative teaching, fearless learning. And the innovative teaching, as we always say, is this perfect blend between the research, the science of reading, as well as then the blend to bringing out the talents of our students. So if you would walk through the doors of AIM Academy, what you would see is very engaged students. I think that's the number one key here. Um, I have a son, an older son, um, so I have two children and my son is the older, and he did not have a learning difference, but I don't. I always say I don't think anyone hooked him through his school mm. years. And it yeah. took to graduating from college, he, woke, he didn't have a teaching degree, and he decided he was going to teach. But he never got hooked along the way. And so what we do, the unique innovative teaching you would see, is that the students are definitely learning to read. They're, we're uh, applying the research. They don't even realize <laughs> that it's research-based or evidence-based, but our teachers do, and our teachers are trained to do it. One of my favorite examples of innovative teaching would be if you would walk into our fifth grade, let's say, 
And one period a day, they're in this interactive humanities room. And it, when you walk through those doors, you are transformed back to the Renaissance. And all the students are putting on their guild hats. And every <laughs> student is assuming a role of one of the artisans or scientists or uh, literary folks of the time learning about the Renaissance. And they take turns being either Michelangelo or Dante, and they they lead a project, and they do the research around that character, and they become the character of the time. So through that, that innovative teaching, in fact, we would do tours of folks, and I would say, oh, well, here the students are learning history. And one little student said, this is history? They had no idea. <laughs> I thought idea. it was acting. <laughs> theater. I thought it was theater. And it, So that would be just one example. What, so why do we do that? Why, what are they learning? Well, the research in, in the science of reading and the science of language teaches us that children, in order to be great readers, and we want all our children to be great readers, need to have great, deep background knowledge, deep vocabularies. They need to live and understand and use their vocabulary, not just read it and decode it, which of course is a struggle for many of our students, but as they're learning on that, they need to understand all of the background that goes into that. They'll be able to read more quickly, fluently, and have better comprehension that way. It's just one example. Right. It spans all the grades, though. You could go to our 12th grade. You could see the entrepreneurship club. You could follow the students where they are dual enrolled at the close school at entrepreneurship down at Drexel for half the time. But then they come back. They work on their entrepreneurial studies. And, yes, they work on language and English and history and math. Right. Right. but the innovation of watching these, the robotics and their engineering, drama and the arts and design, and their work at the University of the Arts dual enrollment, it's unbelievable to see these students thrive when they're engaged, when they're feeling successful, when they feel they're mastering what they need to learn, mm-hmm. and then all their energy then can be put into their talents. Parents come to us when they begin to apply an aim and say, well, I think my child has some talent in music, but my child hasn't played his instrument for five years because either he's not feeling good about himself or I have to do so much extra support and tutoring outside of school um, because he isn't learning in school that he doesn't have the time. And that's heartbreaking for us. Yeah. And then they come to AIM, and since it's all integrated into this innovative teaching, then the next thing you know, they're Macbeth on the stage, (laughs) or they're playing the viola uh, as a virtuoso, literally. So it's very exciting. It must be incredibly rewarding to see that a child be discouraged and lacking that confidence and then flourish. And is it correct to say that, you know, instead of using the term innovative teaching, that it, it's it's real world learning and immersing themselves into the subjects because just hearing, you know, a, um, a lecture or, or, and of course, reading, if it's an issue, is not going to be enough. It's not enough. Yeah. It's not enough. 
but it does take innovative teachers too. That's right. Because, right? Yes. So we've had to really identify those teachers that embrace the science, but also embrace innovative techniques. So here's a question. Um, we talk about innovative science and research in all fields. How much do you, I mean, Nancy, maybe I'll ask you this question. How much is intuitive? How much are you using your intuition with a child um, that perhaps you just sense that they need this at this moment and maybe it goes against the science? Does that happen? Well, actually, I would step back a little bit further and say if you have a teacher that's well-trained, who really knows what the science is, then she, she or he will have enough tools in their toolbox to be able to look at each student. Because although they will use the term disability, and we do use that only for two reasons. Number one, currently, if it's listed in a neuropsych or psychoeducational evaluation that a student has a language-based learning difference or, well, disability, our tuition is tax-deductible under medicine. Now, that might go away, but currently, for our first 12 years, that was the case. If a student wants accommodations on the ACT or SAT, it has to be a disability, oh. not a difference and if you want to go to the schools of higher ed and get accommodations again you need documentation it's a disability until those groups change their nomenclature we do list that but at no time do we ever look at our students as having a disability rather that they all learn differently there's not one student mm -hmm. in our building that learns differently yeah. or that learns the same right. so that's why it's so important for us to have such well-trained teachers and we really do have amazing faculty and staff if you saw the interactions with the students if the student isn't understanding something they will break it down based on what the research supports but to add to that we bring researchers in from florida state um, from florida center for reading research they actually, what Pat was talking about for the Renaissance Club, mm -hmm. they actually came in and said, and research, did the critical thinking skills that were going on in those inter, um, interactive humanities clubs transfer over to comprehension skills? Mm. And we thought they did, but again, we didn't want to take that chance, so they came in and assess that piece. And the good news is for the greater majority, it did. So for us, this is that exciting part. The research is still gonna continue to come out for children who learn differently. Mm -hmm. And that's our job to stay current. It might look different in 10 years from now, based on the functional MRIs they're doing, based on more and more of the different um, areas that they're researching. And that's our job to stay current and then our job to dis disseminate those best practices to the area because that's what we find exciting. So, and I would, yeah, and then the, the more um, studies of the brain is yes. probably continually giving you more, not which makes it exciting, right? I can't imagine you'd ever think yeah. you'd be in education and think, well, we figured it all out and this is how we're going to do it, right? Well, and exactly, and some of the exciting research that's coming out is they are looking to determine can we determine before 
be and like how early and how old mm-hmm. will a child be but we can determine and even start early intervention even earlier right now sadly what happens a lot of kids show up on our door in third grade because in third up to third grade you're learning to read and then from third grade on well that dyslexia does not appear in third grade it has been there since birth Mm -hmm. and it has been there so what are the elements that we can do whether it's at home whether it's at preschools, whether it's um, enriching robust vocabulary into environments where the children are, all these things are critical. So that's why we always say the earlier the better, and this research is driving for that um, component as well. Um, This is also um, interesting to me. And when we come back, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors. When we come back, I want to talk about how um, this style of learning and teaching could be used in other schools, public, private, all schools. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Michael Bertoni, founder and CTO of Philly Tech. I'm throwing the first annual Philly Tech Community Holiday Party at CODA in Rittenhouse Square, Philadelphia on Wednesday, December 13th from 6 to 9 p.m. This party will be a celebration of technology and innovation happening throughout the greater Philadelphia region, and everyone is invited. You'll have the opportunity to learn more about the tech scene in Philly, network and praise our achievements, while giving back to littles within Big Brothers Big Sisters of Philadelphia. 20% of the dollars raised in the event will go towards buying holiday gifts for littles in Big Brothers Big Sisters and putting a big smile on their faces during the holidays. Here's what you can expect at the holiday party. We'll kick off with a live comedy show called Good Joke, Bad Joke, Bingo by comedian Sean Wickens. The first 100 people to arrive go into a drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Enjoy free open bar, free buffet, and DJ from 6 to 9 p.m. Tickets are only $20 on Eventbrite by searching in Philadelphia for first annual Philly Tech Community Holiday Party or going to my website at phillytech.co. Make sure it's phillytech.co. Looking forward to seeing you there. This is Kristen Hillsley, financial advisor of the Foley Hillsley Group, with a big announcement. Last fall, I hosted a women's lifestyle conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances. Now I'm excited to announce a new partnership with Women to Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more, all available at womentowatch.net and our own website, foleyhillsleygroup.com. I'm thrilled about this new partnership, and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial. Stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at foleyhillsleygroup.com. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird and Company, member SIPC. Log on to foleyhillsleygroup.com to learn more. That's F-O-L-E-Y-H-I-L-L-S-L-E-Y group.com. Or call 610-238-6636. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. 
In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this afternoon by Pat Roberts and Nancy Blair, the co-founders of AIM Academy here in the Philadelphia area. And uh, this school is for students with learning uh, disabilities. And um, I wanted to talk about... I believe that most of what you're saying seems almost common sense to me as far as best practices for learning for children. And uh, I'm wondering what your thoughts are in incorporating this this model of learning to all schools. You know, AIM happens to be a private um, school, and, and you have a 334 students? 341. 341. You started with 25, which... Um, I, I do want to ask you that as well. I want to know how you got those first 24 students to come to a brand new school. Um, but let's just talk for a few minutes about how these um, these ways of learning can be incorporated into other schools and why why it matters and why why it should. Nancy? Well, I think the most important thing when you say why it matters is we have a third of our students to not reading at grade level and significantly below grade level. And that's across. It's a large number. And that's third. across the United States. We have 7,000 students dropping out of high school each day in the United States. And the wow. majority of the time, it's because they can't keep up with the literacy demands. Because as the text gets more complex, the writing requirements get more complex, the students st begin to fail, which is why for us, we really do want to go in and help and train other teachers in the science of reading. There is a phenomenal, there are some phenomenal researchers out there, and there's some wonderful resources, whether it's the Florida Center for Reading Research, there's a group, um, the International Dyslexia Association, the um, Dyslexia Foundation, all of these organizations are working to get the research out there into the classroom because they continually see we are not changing those reading scores. There's a... Um, test and assessment called the NAEP scores and they assess each year in fourth grade and eighth grade we're not making a dent in reading mm. so to look at this why we see this our mantra is we teach literacy all day long reading should not just be in your literacy block it should be in your science um Block. It should be in your social studies block. All these aspects, one of our great researchers that we respect so much talks about if you can read, it's a science test. If you can't read, it's a reading test. So again, reading goes into every aspect of what we're doing. And so when we look at this and we look at this solid research that's coming out of NIH, NIH, 
NIHCD, um, all of these are critical to what we need to get into our schools of higher ed because school districts cannot afford to keep on paying to have teachers trained. What they need is these teachers to come out of the schools of higher ed with that training, equipped to know, one, assess and screen for the child who's a struggling reader, and two, then what do they need to do to make a difference with that child based on what the evidence and the research suggests? Um, Two questions I have for you. you do not only have children at your school with dyslexia diagnosis, correct? Correct. There's other learning issues that there's they have. There's dysgraphia, and that's difficulty with writing, and there's dyscalculia, that's difficulty with math. What people don't realize is that dyslexia does go over to writing, and it does go over to math. Often children with dyslexia will have difficulty with fluency with their math facts. So yes, they might understand the concept, but then for them to just say, you know, five times four is 20, that doesn't come as quickly for them. So these are the elements that people realize, don't realize how much one affects the other. Can you say simply what dyslexia is? Because in my, I, and I'm not sure whether this is correct or not, that it, um, someone who's reading with dyslexia, the letters are swapped. No. <laughs> See, that's what I grew up uh, no. believing. So that's, tell us what it what exactly that's it is. That's one of the myths. It's a myth. Yes. And so, yes, sometimes students, some students will have letter reversals, and that can be one slight characteristic. However, many children will have it, and it does not mean that they have dyslexia. So the important piece is it is neurological in origin. It is an unexplained reason for having difficulty learning to read. So in other words, they have average to above average IQs. So this has nothing to do with IQ. Mm -hmm. This has nothing to do with intellectual capability. But when they look at the elements of where they're looking um, from the reading aspect, there's a wonderful woman, Hollis Scarborough, does a reading rope. And anybody who's listening who wants to learn more, go on and search Hollis Scarborough's reading rope because she shows all the aspects of what it takes to develop a skilled, fluent, and independent reader. And it's decoding. It's spelling. Spelling is something that's very difficult for those with dyslexia. It is um, then back the vocabulary development, all with the end goal of comprehension. It's never just phonics. It's never just spelling. It's all of these aspects. It's never just vocabulary. You have to have all these intertwined to develop a fluent and skilled reader. But unfortunately, we hear this over and over again about the letter reversal, mm-hmm. and that's not what dyslexia yeah. is at all. That's that's what I grew up knowing. Um, I'd love to know how you got your first 24 students back in 2006 to come to the school. Pat, what was your, what was your, um, you know. Uh, what were we thinking, right? <laughs> what were you thinking? No, but you thought, what would what, you decide that we need to do to get these students to come? Well, we have a couple of funny stories around that. But uh, at the time, Sally Smith, we mentioned her earlier in the mm-hmm. broadcast uh, as a mentor, Uh, She 
came to our first open house in April of 2006. We did not open our doors until that September. And where were the, the doors? And the where doors was, were, were in Maniung, okay. which is sort of funny, having grown up in Roxborough mm-hmm. and just, again, the circle of life. There I was. What was I doing back home in Maniung? My neighborhood. In yeah. my neighborhood. Sally Smith came, <clears throat> and we posted around to the psychologists, the schools. We're going to have an open house. We're announcing uh, this new school in the Maniunk section of Philadelphia. And uh, we're going to be hosting Sally Smith, who will come and help us present what's so important about working with children as early as we can who have these language-based learning differences. So Sally comes and we're thinking, well, you know, maybe half a dozen people will show up, a dozen people. If I tell you those first two or three open houses, uh, we had 100 people show up Wow! at each session, somewhere between 70 and 100 wow. every time. But I remember the weekend one was 100. And Nancy and I just looked at each other and went, I, I guess there's no turning back (laughs) now we have to do it (laughs) so that was an aha moment Um, and so it really jettisoned us to a validation a validation that there was a tremendous need and we needed to start working very very hard um, to make that work but we didn't have enough teachers to support many more than the 24 to 30 that was our first year goal um, but then we've grown exponentially over each of the 12 years to our current 341. We did not have a high school when we opened up, so we just had grades 2 to 6, 2 to 7, with one second grader and one seventh grader, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's been really exciting to see this unfold, but this, what we now have seen is everything we've learned from the research is telling us this is not just confined to children who learn differently. All this neural, there is no such thing as a reading brain. We are not born to read. Children are not born to read. You and I and Nancy, we're not born to read. We must hardwire and wire our brains, set these neurological pathways to be a proficient reader. And it's really fascinating when you think about it that way. So whether you have a learning difference or you come from a family where language isn't spoken that much, Mm. Uh, we have a great researcher out of the uh, Georgia State University that talks about the impact of African-American dialect on learning language and starts setting those neurological pathways to hearing a sound, seeing the symbol, now start putting the sim- the words and the sounds together, now ha- building up the process of fluency, bringing meaning, which is what we were talking about with comprehension, beginning to form sentences, longer sentences, paragraphs. This research applies to all children, all children to, who learn to read. So that's why we're so excited. I'm particularly excited since I went to Levering School, Levering Elementary School, and ultimately went on to Roxborough and Girls High here in the city. Now we need to get this word out to all the educators who are working with children. And we have two pilot schools in the school district of Philadelphia, so we're starting with those 
kindergarten to third grade children and specifically their teachers mm -hmm. beginning to work with them. We also have a pilot where we're working with all, something like 39 literacy leaders who are in 39 elementary schools in the school district of Philadelphia. So again, for me personally, it's another full circle right. experience. And for Nancy yeah. and I, it's so critical because when we come back from these conferences and understand how urgent it is that we start early, as, as early as possible, we just want to go up and down and wave the banners I and bet. saying, the moms and dads, yeah. um, there's, you have to start as early as you can. They can't all come to AIM. We're nearing capacity. But if we can help other schools, uh, we have another partner school in West Philadelphia called the Community Partnership School. Although they have some low tuition, many of the families don't pay any tuition, and we're helping to raise monies to be able to provide the training and education for those teachers. So we've been very fortunate um, if a school district comes to us and says, we don't have the funds, but we know we have to do better. We're not getting our children reading at grade level. Then Nancy and I go out and we raise the money <laughs> to Which find is very difficult. foundations, yeah. fi find philanthropic individuals who do want to make that difference. So we're doing everything we can. We raise scholarships for our children, for other children, everything we can mm. to make sure this is accessible yeah. to as many, many children both in AIM and outside our walls. Yeah. You have a uh, nationally and internationally known research advisory board. How critical is that to what you do? We are so fortunate to have them. You want to talk about how we've met them all? So through the years, even since 2006, we were going to the International Dyslexia Association a national conference each year and each year we would hear them present on the research so we would continually go up introduce ourselves tell them what we were doing really wanted to get their input then we met through a group this dyslexia foundation and they this gentleman will baker he brings all of these researchers together and then he invites practitioners and when we had where we've met them, we listened to everything that they said. We're like, wow, this is amazing. So when we've met them, we've said we'd really like you to come to AIM. So each year, AIM hosts a research advisor um, research symposium, and this year it will be on Monday, March twelfth. We have found sponsors, so there's no cost. We invite area superintendents, principals, schools of higher ed, and we bring these researchers with the sole purpose of having them share their research. We also stream it across the United States. To us, this is that piece that we feel that we have been so fortunate to learn from their expertise that now it's our time to make sure that we get that um, disseminated out. I want to ask you both, um, nothing ever moves as quickly as we want it to, right? <laughs> and, and you're taking on a, a big um, issue. And everyone's talking about our education system across the country with children. Tell me, do you ever feel, I'm sure you do, overwhelmed with the task at hand? Um, 
in tr trying, as you mentioned, Pat, to reach as many parents and families as you can. And when you do, what, how do you, what do you say to yourself to kind of get over that hump? Pat, you're laughing. Uh, Let me tell me what. Well, if what you you're come thinking. to my office, you'll yeah. see my favorite sign that says, "Give me patience, but please hurry." <laughs> um, so I think what I want to say to everyone is that we have been very, very encouraged through all our work with teachers out there. Um, they're passionate. They are hungry for the information. They're hungry for the research, and I think that's very rewarding. I think we're we're very optimistic right now. There are a lot of parent grassroots organizations, one that's spread um, amazingly across the country called Decoding Dyslexia. Mm -hmm. It's a grassroots parent organization started in New Jersey, and now it's in every state in the United States. And these are moms, dads, advocates, educating themselves via the work we do, via the work the researchers do. So I think, although it's slow, <laughs> um, I think we are very proud at how we've been able to connect a lot of dots. We've been able to work with a lot of very passionate people. Mm -hmm. So I think what typically takes a little bit longer, there's a great initiative that Dr. Height is leading in the school district of Philadelphia called Read by Fourth with his goal for his school district of 180,000 children that all children be reading on grade level by grade four by a certain time. And so he's assembled this wonderful group of folks that are entitled the Read by Fourth group and we're part of that. And so I think it's just making those connections with like-minded individuals mm -hmm. that allow you to, at least in your sphere, see the progress a little more quickly. I think if you look at the whole, and as Nancy said, look at those NAEP scores across our fourth graders, uh, all, of him, all of whom you know, are not reading on grade levels, Nancy said, about a third of the children not reading at basic levels, mm. reading below basic. That's a lot of children in the United States. Yeah. Likewise for the eighth grade measures. Hence the dropout rate, Nancy quoted, of 7,000 children every day in the States. So I think we just keep our heads down, right. keep focused, right. um, and we're just fortunate we've been able to collect um, uh, a lot of energy from these people who we work with, including our own staff, and faculty, that's the reward. When when our teachers come to us, they don't know all of this information necessarily either. Right. So the when we you must see, see in them. how they're, it doesn't take that long to get teachers to be very, very skilled and gifted at helping to understand and translate this research into the classroom, but you, it's, you have to have a plan and you have to stick to it. Yeah. So whether it takes two years or three years for a teacher or four years for a teacher to become an expert, you, you, what are the options? You That's have right. to stick to it. Again, Nancy's world of medicine, I, I love the perspective she brings. Um, you have to share your story about that you didn't have enough time to get trained on the latest anesthetic. 
So yes. I always said that, you know, because we always talk about in service and training, etc. But one of the things they said that if I was, when I was a nurse anesthetist, if you were preparing for surgery and I came up to you and said, there's a new anesthetic agent out, I haven't had enough time to go to the in-services yet, but I think I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Why don't you get up and leave? Yes. Well, we need to do the same thing in education. Mm. We need to demand that the research is being implemented. We need to find the resources. We need to have teachers sent out well-trained. We were so thrilled because we've set up a partnership with St. Joseph's University and they are teacher scholars. They're graduate. These are full certified teachers. They could be out teaching anywhere. They've chosen to get a master's degree in special education and they do a practicum almost like a residency for a year at aim of which they get six graduate credits that's fantastic in tandem with courses and so when we see this and we see how skilled those teachers come out it's really pretty exciting um, I, you mentioned a parent-run organization, and I think very often the parents are the warriors behind, right, <laughs> yes. pushing for things to get done. I want to give a shout-out to Bridget, one of your parents who connected us, oh. and, and she had uh, you, you know, um, put you on my radar and, and allowed me to bring you into the show today. But I wonder if we just have a minute left, if you can share a story about a child, a student that is at the forefront that perhaps exceeded expectations and, um, you know, went on to do great things because of the uh, their education at AIM. Well, I alluded to the story of, uh, and I'll, his name is Kyle, and he came to us in ninth grade. His parents tell the story all the time, so I know they won't mind us sharing. And he came to us in ninth grade, and his parents had never heard him play an instrument. And within the first, I don't even know if it was the first month or two, uh, he was tapped to play in uh, what was the music man, I believe, what we were putting on as our play? And he is a, if I tell you, a virtuoso in the viola. Wow. And then, and his parents had never heard him play. We were down at the University uh, of the Arts Theater, where before we had our own theater built. He was playing magnificently. And then the story goes on because our lead male uh, performer had laryngitis and was sick. And then he was the understudy, and he was singing. Singing? <laughs> so that's a story. The Kyle story is very near and that's dear what, to us. Because it was discovered, right, and it would not have been. Because he felt comfortable. He got confident in his who he was and his mm, learning. I love that. Uh, I think the one young man that comes to my mind is a young man who started with another classmate, and they started a business called Opportunity Rise, and it was to set up scholarships. They did a TEDx talk, and they've set up their own businesses. They've had the one young man did internships in London, and in fact, he was speaking down in Miami about AIM, and someone was so moved that they um, turned and gave scholarship dollars to AIM. They were so impressed with him. That's and fantastic. he said he never would have been able to do and that. And he wrote a book. And he oh wrote a book. <laughs> Listen, you're doing great work. I thank you so much for coming in this afternoon and sharing your story and, and the work that you're doing. And we'll be sharing it across all of our social media and our website. 
Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Be sure to go to our website for all things related to the show at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. Have a great week. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.